The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the History of Gear series, we talk with Bruce Johnson about the history and impact of early winners. We talk about the omnipotent and the introduction of Gore-Tex into the industry. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase. And uh, joining me again after a little bit of a hiatus, I feel like, um, Bruce Johnson, um, creator of the History of Gear Project. Um, thanks for joining me again. It's been a minute since we've talked about uh, a company. Uh, for a minute there, we were doing... Um, more of conversations about the evolution of, of different types of gear. Um, and we took a little break, seemed like, and now we're back. I think we're, we're both ready to get back and talk about, you know, some of these influential gear companies. And, and one, I, I imagine this one has got to be um, influential for you. It's, it's one of those Pacific Northwest companies, one of those yes, Seattle, indeed. Washington companies. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, this company personally was one that myself, my sister, my mother, uh, we were all buying gear from this place and enjoying their products. So in addition to it being like local, so that's the personal link, but uh, they're an interesting little company. So, why don't we put up a picture of the founder, the president of the company? His name is Bill Nikolai. The key thing about this picture is that the company in those days, it was the days of long hair and beards, and he apparently was one of them. Um, he's wearing a prototype Gore-Tex parka there. It, maybe the anorak version and so this is one of the company's biggest claims to fame which is being the first with a Gore-Tex parka and that's Bill Nikolai who uh, started things off in 1972. Uh, Let's go to that picture of the tent. The story goes that he was up on early winter's spire in the North Cascades and got a tent destroyed by terrible winds, big storm, and wanted to design his own version of the very strongest and best mountain tent, came up with something that he called the Omnipotent, and that was in 1972. Uh, show me that other picture of the omnipotent. Yeah, this is off their catalog, uh, 1974. 
showing the omnipotent with its midpoles and its optional vestibule attachment there. So let's move on to me just giving some background on the whole world of gear back there in 1971, 72. The, the time period where early winters was trying to get itself started was a really active period. There were a lot of companies uh, getting started at that time. There were a lot of companies who had already been up and running uh, during the late 60s, like Sierra Designs and North Face and MSR, some of these that we've talked about before. Uh, Hollybar was still very big, very big in the market. Uh, Jerry uh, had already been kind of taken over by a corporate entity that uh, kind of switched them over to downhill ski clothing. So they were starting to fade out of the, the uh, picture of uh, gear companies making tents and sleeping bags. So along comes this guy, Bill Nikolai, with what he thinks is a, is a really great four-season tent design. And it's his only product. The competition is fierce, and I'll outline some of that. We've got North Face, we've got Hollybar, we've got Sarah Designs, uh, all producing really high-quality tents designed for uh, extreme four-season use. We've got the Jansport Mountain Dome at that time. Uh, and in back of it all, we've got Stevenson Warmlight, uh, who in 1958, before anybody else was experimenting with prototypes of a, of a tent that was based on aerodynamic principles, the elliptical arch, he called it technically. So we had lots of competition. Uh, Warm Light um, had publicly in a catalog started selling their tent in 64, you could get it in a kind of upgraded uh, expedition version with a mid-pole. And anyway, so the background of early winters trying to make a go of it is interesting. And the story goes that uh, at first, Bill Nikolai was selling uh, his tents made it in the basement of a friend on something like a ping pong table, cutting out the pieces with an X-Acto knife. Uh, that he was selling them at street fairs mm. in Seattle. Um, so he was joined in that initial effort uh, by a fellow named Ron Zimmerman, uh, who became what I would call the company's marketing genius and really led to its success. Uh, let me uh, read to you something from a uh, uh, Bill Edwards, there were two Bills, Bill Nikolai, Bill Edwards. Bill Edwards was an architect who gave up his architecture to join the company um, a, little, a little later than, than the very first principles. Uh, but he's written a lot to me. So he writes here, there were three principles. Bill Nikolai, the founder and president, myself, Vice President of Product Operations, and employee number three after Bill and Helene Hood, our first sewing machine operator, 
and Ron Zimmerman, Vice President of Marketing. The three of us worked together for 12 years to build the company. You may want to contact Ron and Bill for their input. And indeed, I have had input uh, from most of those people. And I totally agree with Bill Edwards here uh, that it would be just so wonderful if one or more of these folks came on in person because there's all sorts of things I'd like to ask them. Like I'd like to see Bill Nikolai talk about, well, where did you learn to sew high quality mountain tents? Uh, where did you get the machine? Uh, how long did it take to perfect this design? Uh, did you have misfires? Uh, lots of things that they could add. I don't know other information about the company. Uh, you know, how big did their uh, uh, employee, uh, how many employees did they end up with? What was their sales volume, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they ran from 72 to about 85. Well, and like you said, this was such an active period of time. Like what a time to be jumping into the market, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'd be curious to ask them, what were you thinking, right? Like what, what did, did you think you really had something unique that would set you apart? And clearly they did. But uh, that's a really daunting period of time to want to jump in when you've got all these soon to be juggernaut companies and some juggernauts of the past, right? With, with Jerry and Holubar. So it'd be interesting to get into that with them. Yes. Oh, indeed. And for me, the, the uh, Omnipent was an interesting tent. I owned one at one point, uh, but that was in the 2000s. I just owned it because I was curious about it, picked it up on eBay. Um, but their big break was when a Gore-Tex rep came around saying, we got this new material, who wants to try it out? And he, this rep had apparently had a lot of no's at that point from the big companies like Eddie Bauer and North Face. Nah, nah, we don't, I don't know. And they said, yeah, we'll try some. And they went ahead and produced a mountain parka, the first Gore-Tex mountain parka in the world. And <clears throat> shortly thereafter, a, uh, a tent made out of Gore-Tex, a single wall tent. Uh, and that was also a first. And then with the, I would venture to say the marketing geniuses of uh, uh, Ron Zimmerman, they, they made some great catalogs and really marched ahead and became uh, a pretty big player in that early period of time. And we have talked on this podcast about how companies that make durable products like tents, sleeping bags, packs, how they survive or not, depending on a lot of factors. But one of them is, do they sell anything that they can keep selling year after year after year to a customer base. And early winters, in addition to being first with the Gore-Tex, I think they were first uh, really in the history of any major gear company to try selling a bunch of really strange, exotic 
products. <laughs> and uh, that many were only loosely affiliated with being a, like a backpacker. So I have a couple examples, and then we have a whole bunch of pictures to show people. Uh, like this is one of the many weird little things they were selling. It's a great little box. It seals up tight as can be. It's slick and shiny, and I've had this thing for forever, 30 years plus. It's very useful. They had a lot of stuff. It's one of like those lo loosely affiliated camping gear products, right? It's like, right. oh, this could be really great, you know, camping or doing whatever, storing all sorts of different stuff in it, but uh, not maybe a core outdoor product that, that would jump out at you, right? It's a nice accessory, an add-on. Now, I was going to wear this, but with my pandemic haircut here, I, it would make me look terrible, terrible after I took it off. Uh, this is another little product. A silk balaclava. You could wear it under a climbing helmet, see? Mm, yeah. you, could, you could wear it under your motorcycle helmet, under your bicycle helmet. So I've still got this little guy. Not that I wear it much. Usually I'd wear it more like a rolled up, like a little stocking cap. <clears throat> and I also still have this thing, which is a... Uh, a Gore-Tex bivouac sack that they made. If one can see the label here. There we go. Now, some uncharitably have called their label the blowhard label. Uh, to me, and I could be wrong, and I could be corrected by Bill Edwards or Bill Nikolai or... Ron Zimmerman. Uh, the label to me is like true to form. That's how the company got started. They got blown off a mountain, got a tent destroyed by high winds. So it seems kind of authentic, probably. And I like that about it. Well, let's put on some of those strange and quirky products. Yeah, so early winters um, under Ron Zimmerman, at first, they were one product, the Omnipotent. Then with the Gore-Tex, they had Tent Mountain Park as a basis of the company. And then a year or two later, you start seeing in their catalogs just a whole host of really diverse, kind of somewhat related to, uh, <laughs> to outdoor topics, products appearing. And... Uh, yeah, I have all four of these, and all these years later, they're still useful. This is a uh, candle lantern, which uh, during the 70s, it seems like a number of companies started selling these, including early winters. This one's from REI. So they use a candle, uh, either a little tea candle, T-E-A, uh, or a, a plumber's candle, which lasted a great deal longer. Uh, they even added a little bit of heat to a tent in the wintertime. And you could get them in a beautiful brass, too, in the Christmas catalog. So mm. there you go. Next one. Oh, we got an upside-down one. Oh, yeah. 
okay, well, I'll just talk through this. Um, to me, this is one of the most amazing little things, the Chinese bird kites. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know, maybe you backpack that into your favorite little mountain lake and fly it, but okay. Uh, they were also selling uh, some of the Gore-Tex. Uh, they had bike booties. So again, number of products that could be year after year sold and new products every year. And uh, I have uh, an ex-employee uh, email that says, this is one of the things she loved the most about the company is just this, this quirky catalog that was always changing and all these interesting new products they were putting in them. Next picture. Uh, oh, this is just my picture of what catalogs I do have. And it traces the evolution of the company because long about 84, 85, Orvis, the uh, fishing company, uh, took them over. And Orvis, as I recall, also had taken over, was it Holly Bar? Or one of the other big companies. They're buying up outdoor countries, companies. Yeah. Um, that didn't last very long that Orvis had them. Then somebody else bought them briefly. And then finally they ended up with Norm Thompson, which is a company that I had been uh, very fond of down in Portland. They had a store there that called themselves uh, Expedition Outfitters, where you could go in. They had water buffalo heads on the wall and, and safari clothing and there was always free wine and cheese but that's who ended up with uh, the company uh, and then that spun itself off into Sahali which was around at least until about 2008 and then now I think it's gone completely so that's the history of the company in a nutshell mm. so next picture This kind of illustrates the company's uh, quirky catalogs, okay? Fun stuff. They're selling pants for the outdoors. And, and some of these people here uh, went on with the company. Uh, I think I know who that is. I think I might know who that is, but we'll leave yeah. that up to Bill Edwards to <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I imagined maybe some some employees hidden in here is Bill in there I uh, you know like I see Bill uh, Edwards in there I know I'm guessing but yeah. okay uh so go on next one this is my Gore-Tex bibby sack English rugby shorts a compass, okay. Well, everybody needs a compass in the woods. Next one. Selling the last flashlight you'll ever have to buy. This was a design using a little, if I can see that. I think if this is a shake design that has a little mm. kind of a magnet thing in it that generates electricity for a little while. You can see it gets a lot of space in the catalog. Yeah. Okay, next. Uh, a pad, the tree finders. The cosmic sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. There you go. That was 
the kind of language that they would use brilliantly. Is that the is that the Ron Ron Zimmerman marketing? Yeah, yeah, I could uh, pull out a email from him where he talks about uh, that he basically did all the catalogs uh, this whole period from their very first one to their last real catalog in uh, 1985. The tough little stove that does it all. I had one of those stoves at one point. Uh, if I can see that right, I think it's a Coleman. Very, very tough, durable, reliable stove, quite heavy. Yeah, so while they were making a lot of their own products, they were selling the products of other people too. Um, oh, oh, kind yes. of interesting. Were, were other companies doing that at the time? You know, outside of you know the REIs of the world, right? Uh, were, were there other companies that were kind of doing this? Was a North Face doing something like this in their catalog, selling other people's stuff? Again, uh, I believe this is uh, another first, definitely to the extent that early winners did it. It was a first hmm. to just be having you know true blue their own great product, right? And then all this other stuff <laughs> from all kinds of other sources. Next one. Oh, binoculars. And so here we have um, these, I'm an amateur astronomer. These actually are terrific binoculars, pretty much the best that you could have bought back then for a mini binocular. So there it is. Uh, and I've had emails, incidentally, from people who were customers in the old days who think I'm, I'm early winters and they want, oh, I want those binoculars or I, I've trashed my Chinese bird kite, I wanna order a new one. So you have people out there still wanting their stuff these these quirky things <laughs> that that kind of brings up the question how so over the course of the company you said they existed from 1972 to when was it uh in, in early basic, winter's form i guess yeah uh 85 and uh, again those later 80s um later well i mean from about my last catalog to the end where uh, I'm told by Zimmerman that their last real catalog was in 85. I don't yeah. know if they had the full range of products, tents and so forth um, all the way up through 85. Right. So you mentioned that, I mean, the core products really capturing people's attention, but then all these quirky items too that people are still looking for. Was that apparent at the time? Was that something that really drew people in and, and, you know, obviously people still remember it and they still have some affinity for the company. Um, you know, what, what was it like in the moment? I mean, you saw this company kind of rise, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what, what was the response from, from most people um, that were in the industry seeing this company kind of, you know, come up? I didn't see a lot of people hop right in and start to be... Uh, uh, imitating that approach. Um, again, like you indicated, REI, of course, had a wide product line. Back on the East Coast, EMS, you know, had tons of stuff. Uh, not that they were making 
a whole lot of new innovative products themselves, but they were you know, marketing all sorts of products from other companies. Uh, let's go to the next one of these. Okay, the tree finders and the pad. Um, go ahead, one more. Oh, there it is. The cheese yep. knife. Yep, the French. This isn't just any old knife. If you want to be an authentic outdoors person, have gourmet food outdoors, you got to have a French folding country knife. Now, these weren't high quality steel. <laughs> I, I had one. Uh, they were just nice little things. They, the, the way that uh, they were advertised uh, just made people want to have one and wanted uh, and people would uh, therefore since the products changed from catalog to catalog that that encouraged people to always open up that catalog that came in the mail don't throw it away let's see what new stuff they got in there well i, I don't know if this was conscious or not but this kind of seems like an attempt to expand the definition of the outdoors right uh. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. Maybe I'm making that up, but kind of seems like at this time, there's a lot of the extreme outdoor companies, right? The North Face, um, you know, these are companies making the best of the best. And and I mean, they were making this that as well, you know, with, with the Parka and the Omnipotent, you know, things that could, could withstand all the elements, but it seems like they're trying to cater to the other extreme, you know, maybe the casual outdoor person, the person who needs their cheese knife, right? Or you know, <laughs> wants to buy, buy a kite. So it, it's kind of interesting them trying to serve, I imagine, some very different customers. Oh, you make a good point there. Yeah, you, you know, you can't, you can't even imagine. Here we are at Everest Base Camp, and these people pulling out their French bread knives and flying a Chinese bird kite. <laughs> no, this is a whole different <laughs> clientele. <laughs> the next one, let's see what we got next. Oh, I, oh, I love this. Oh, this is my personal favorite. Okay, so <clears throat> click through to the next one. Now, the size of this, look at this. You need a microscope to, to read this little cookbook, but it's the real deal. It actually is a little cookbook designed with recipes for the outdoors. There's a little story behind this. I was contacted by a woman who lived down the street from the original Early Winters store, which is on Queen Anne Avenue. It was a old family grocery store that Early Winters took over and, and uh, inhabited for about a year and a half from 74 to mid 76. Anyway, this woman rented to them. And Years and years later, after they'd been long gone, they were demolishing her building that used to be her building, which was not very far away from uh, early winters. And she found a whole box full of these. For some reason, down in the basement of this house that was being demolished, and she sent me one. <laughs> so, so to me, this is kind of special. And the ultimate in a quirky product. 
It's so small. That's that is funny. And is it Bob? Who was who was the author there or the illustrator? Now Bob was a part of the comp. Well, no, I seem to remember Bob being. That name's come up before. Are you familiar with that name? Bob. Yeah, Bob. Hit is it H I S E? Boy, you know uh, that almost gets me to my next uh, segment. Uh, Bob Howe. H-O-W-E, the tent designer, uh, he designed a, a geodesic dome tent for them that they carried in their catalog for a while. Um, oh, you know what? Bob, Bob Hissy. Bob Hissy was another early winners employee. Ah. I've, I've had some conversations with him in the past. Um, yeah, he said he worked with early winners at the time, worked for Ron. Um, so, oh, and so uh-huh. he's, it looks like he's the illustrator in that, in that cookbook. And it does say, now that I took out my magnifying glass, it says copyright early winners. So it is one of their products. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So early winters, um, to me, uh, represents kind of the ultimate little company, like so many of the others that, that we've talked about, these early companies, they started with just a, a, a dream on an extremely small, underfunded scale. And who knows how many were like that that I never even heard of that failed. But this one rose, and the introduction to Gore-Tex was the magic bullet for them. And then they attempted to continue onward with their core products and all of this real quiche stuff and, and then got bought up and then gradually faded out of existence. Where have we heard that story before? The most pathetic thing uh, to me was uh, the last, well, the last Sahali catalog that I have, which has a bunch of products from other companies in it. And one thing labeled as early winters, early winters, parka, Gore-Tex parka and Gore-Tex pants. That's it. Early winters. Everything else is by somebody else. It's not really an early winters catalog anymore, but apparently they they had retained the ownership of the brand. Hmm. Somehow had this early winter pattern that they were, still producing. So that's the history of early winters. And I, I wanted to point out that these companies um, don't usually start in a vacuum. There are other companies, other people in the industry who are helping out or collaborating. Uh, in the case of early winters, Believe it or not, they had connections to Rivendell. Mm. <laughs> um, Bill Edwards had, uh, uh, had climbed with uh, Larry Horton in the Tetons uh, in particular. Um, so both of the, the, the two anyway, Bill, both of the Bills were actually pretty good climbers and, and had done some pretty, pretty uh, important things. Um, there was a custom pack company, small, uh, small company that became well-known among 
uh, let's say, Seattle area climbers, Schoenhofen packs, uh, Mike Schoenhofen. Um, and as uh, they knew him, and as Mike started getting more sales, he got overwhelmed in his little one-man operation. So early winters loaded Mike on an airplane, and they flew out to the Tetons to visit Larry Horton. And the purpose of that was to uh, have uh, Larry Horton begin producing some of the packs because they used the same uh, fabrics and, and they had all the uh, heavy equipment to sew these heavy-duty packs, these heavy-duty Schoenhofen packs. And then the Schoenhofen packs were, were an internal, kind of an X-frame internal pack that was uh, uh, for a while sold in the early winters catalog. So, you know, you have these interconnections. Um, so companies hardly ever developed in a total vacuum. I have some emails from early winters employees who left the company and ended up elsewhere, like at Yak Works, Don Wittenberger. Uh, and to me, it's always very interesting to see how the, the skills and the, and the, uh, sometimes even the patterns migrate around into other companies, whether they're startups or whether it's that somebody who has knowledge about early winters ends up somewhere else at an existing company and then starts to share. Just a thought, I guess. Um, it seems like one of the most impactful um, takeaways from early winters is, is the use of Gore-Tex, right? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that we're having this conversation now considering um, the passing of, of Bob Gore, right? Um, Indeed, yes. Just in the last couple of weeks. Um, and, and so it's interesting that we're, this wasn't really planned, obviously. We, we had been planning on having this conversation for a while. So it's interesting timing um, as an aside. But um, I, I think that one of the big takeaways is just that use of new materials, right? I, I think Dr. Gross has mentioned in the past, um, kind of this era is defined by new materials. Innovation in mm. materials is, is kind of, you know, from around this time, time onward is kind of the defining point of of this era of of outdoor gear history is okay now we're it's all about using new materials right and new materials have been used you know with the introduction mm -hmm. of nylon and, and different materials like that in the past but it seems like okay this is the time where you're getting polar fleece you're seeing Gore-Tex fabrics being used it's it's you know from here on out it's all materials and how do we make it lighter faster stronger um, the industry's always had a focus on that, but it seems like now it's at the material level, right? Mm. Um, so I don't know. Sure. If, do you have any thoughts mm. on that? Sure. Uh, early winters, um, in terms of materials, you, you cannot escape a discussion of tent poles, right? You know, the, the fat, straight aluminum poles that were used in uh, all these previous tents from Jerry, from North Face, uh, that was about to change over the next whatever, 10 to 15 years, as they, Easton in particular, uh, developed poles that could bend or had, had pre-bent curves in them. Of course, Warm Light was doing that since 1964. But anyway, everybody else had to catch up. And uh, 
what in early winter's case they they uh, they had a pole that was like fiberglass real small diameter bendable that that you push down and lock together the the sections a real different design um i get uh, actually <laughs> every few months i'll get a uh, a distressed email from somebody I broke one of my early winter's poles. Oh, I really need a new one. <laughs> Can you help? Well, guess what? Your I refer to tent pole technologies, but um, really nobody's <laughs> making those poles anymore. Um, so again, the the poles are part uh, an essential part of the the evolution of the materials. And then of course, in, in the ultralight movement, you've got uh, just one evolution after the other, including innovation like Cuban fiber, to the lighter and lighter and lighter fabrics that are nylon and still nylon and da 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 da. And then, oh, Cuban fiber, non-woven. And then, oh, we're not even sewing the seams anymore. Now we're gluing them together. Uh, so, yeah, just like you say. Well, yeah, I thought it was an interesting point to bring up. It, it kind of seems like that's one of the legacies of this company, right? Is that's, They have that claim to fame of, of you know, having that first Gore-Tex parka. Um, what, what were they using for the tent and parka before that? What were materials that they were using for those products? They didn't have it. No, they went. Oh, from, oh, they just they just hadn't developed anything until they they had. So why? So I guess how did Gore? Do you know, happen to know how Gore-Tex came across them? What products were they selling um, for Gore-Tex to approach them and say, "Do you want to buy Gore-Tex to to make something out of?" Well, uh, again, hopefully one of the Bills or Rons will will uh, uh, tell us the full story. Uh, but you know, in the in in the industry, you have. Uh, uh, people, the go-betweens from the uh, fabric manufacturers to the companies going around saying, you know, how many billion yards of uh, 1.9 ounce ripstop do you want to order this year? Uh, and, oh, we have a new product, whether it's Polar Fleece or whether it's Gore-Tex. And uh, they were smart enough to say yes to that uh, fabric purveyor as he came around. Um, and no, they, uh, this is something I'd love to hear him talk about. Uh, how did they go from, we don't even have a mountain park, or we don't even have a tent to these rather sophisticated designs. Were, were they designers of that caliber? And if so, where did they get their expertise or training? I don't know these these answers. Right. Cause that's my other question regarding the tent. A tent is a complicated product. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, as you and I have discussed, it's architecture, right? You mm -hmm. think about the bill, the, like the bill mosses, right? That's a, that's an architect, um, mm -hmm. that, that designed tents or, um, the Jack Stevensons who's, who's an engineer who, you know, who thinks about structures in that way. And, um, and you mentioned, um, was it Bill, um, which Bill, Bill Edwards Bill was, Edwards was an architect. So uh -huh. um, maybe there's some of that influence there in, in the creation of tents. Uh, well, we'll have to ask him, huh? 
Uh, yeah, this is motivation to get on and clarify the story. Now, um, let's put on uh, a, a picture of the light dimension from the catalog. It should be fairly easy to find among the first images. The light dimension uh, was their signature and the first Gore-Tex ever tent. Um, and to me, since I have owned and used warm light tents, this looks absolutely like a warm light tent made out of Gore-Tex. Uh, there's a few minor differences, but it sure does look like there must have been a design influence from warm light in there somewhere. Right, because I mean, I mean, we it's it's clear that Jack Stevenson introduced the tunnel tent, right? This the the you know with with his design um, and that introduction of more of those flexible poles, the elliptical arch. Um, so the industry was moving this direction, um, you know, since 50, yeah. fifty-five, right? Um, it seemed like it just took a while for people to uh, really adopt the tunnel tent idea. I don't know, well, was, was there kind of a gap in time between, like, was it 55 when that was introduced? And then... Uh, well, you know, Stevenson was, uh, uh, had prototypes in, in 1958. Okay. Uh, he, sold, he sold a few privately during the uh, early 60s, but it, they hit the catalog first time in 64. You know, I might mention, this is interesting too, um, 1972, the same year that early winters introduced their omnipotent uh, across the ocean, <laughs> uh, Hilleberg tents introduced uh, their tent, which looked very much like a Stevenson tent. So there's all kinds of things here that probably you, you or I will, will never know, but. Uh, right. Well, about, we've, we've, we've talked in the past about, I think we talked about the, um, was it the, um, the Jensen pack? Right, uh, the uh -huh. origins of the Jensen Pack, right, and it seemed like there were multiple companies around that time who were all creating similar concepts, um, trying to create a, a you know a frameless pack um, that could distribute the weight better and uh, without the use of a frame or an external frame, and um, it, it you know it kind of goes back to that idea, like like I think you're you're mentioning that. Some of these things, people are just thinking how, are on the same wavelength, even across the ocean, right? Um, and and or or people really are aware of other people's products, and and there's something nefarious there. But I think in most cases, people are kind of thinking along the same lines um, it, in in different ways, um, mm -hmm. and end up at kind of similar conclusions. So um, again, we'll have to talk to the people who are involved to really understand where some of these ideas came from, but. You know, I think it can be as simple. I thought about this too. I mean, it, it could go all the way from uh, they've actually been on a camping trip with somebody who owned one of whatever, the Stevenson tent, and then they really had a chance to really understand it. Uh, or it could be they just saw it in a Summit magazine. Yeah. And said, oh, now that's an interesting looking design. Right. Oh, I wonder if I could make something like that, you know? Right. 
Yeah, so it it that it kind of goes back to the that idea of the evolution of gear, right? It this is how it mm-hmm. happens, right? Is these different founders maybe seeing something out in the wild, they're seeing something like you said in Summit, or they go camp with a friend and they have a new piece of gear, and that's how it evolves, right? It's um it, it is kind of interesting to see like how organic that evolution can be. Now I I will have you put on a couple other tent pictures. Early winters did try to expand their tent line when the geodesic revolution hit in 76. Okay, so right here, this green tent, um, this is not an early winters design. They contracted with uh, Bob Howe, who uh, almost got the credit for the first geodesic tent. Um, There's a big story behind that one too, but... uh, he was designing for a lot of the big companies uh, for many years, all the way up to and including companies like Cabela's. But anyway, so he had a three-person, basically a three-person Gore-Tex geodesic dome that early winters uh, was uh, selling for a while, a year, maybe two, until they decided they were going to make their own dome tent design. And I don't know. Maybe that was Bill Edwards. Yeah, I have one of these. Um, well, yeah, we got to go to the next one. Oh, me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so this is a uh, Gore-Tex design. The poles are in sleeves on the exterior. Uh, so it's a real strong, very tight, taut setup um, shaped somewhat ergonomically uh, skinnier longer <clears throat> and I don't know um, how big a part of the pie they became their dome tents their Gore-Tex dome tents but they did it would be remiss of me not to mention that they had those. It's interesting that, you know, kind of these larger forces in the industry, it's as soon as someone introduces something, right. It's like with maybe the North face and the geodesic, right. Or, uh, you know, what any of those dome, the early dome tents, it seems like there's kind of a rush after that. It's like, Oh, well we got to catch up. I don't know if that's the case with early winters, but um, anytime there's some kind of a new technology or new design that's introduced, it seems like, you can kind of see a lot of other companies at the same time trying to create their own version of that, right? Or variation with their own spin. Yes. Uh, So let's go to a weird looking thing called the pocket hotel. There's this one. And I think another one after this, this is like a modified omnipotent. (laughs) And the goal was something for one person that was better than a bivouac sack. So the, the front of it is like a tiny mini tent, a little tiny omnipotent, and it's Gore-Tex. And, and the feet section is like a bivouac sack. It's like a combo. A yeah, hybrid. with, with no, no structure on the outside, really. Interesting. So see if there's a, another picture of that. I think there is. There's that, yeah, and that. So, so was the idea behind this really like you just – there's less tent to pack? And, yes. Uh, then you just it's, stick your feet out the bottom. It's a one-person hybrid between a omnipotent tent and a, and a bivouac sack. Interesting. 
<laughs> so again, they had some quirky stuff, you know, yeah. gotta, gotta give them credit there. They also had a, uh, a light dimension that had been uh, modified to include a, 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 a mid pole. And that's called the winter light. Right. And you mentioned this, is this more of kind of the expedition kind of product, something with the mid pole, something a little stronger? Again, yes. Uh, they, it's uh, like the omnipotent. Uh, yeah, they continued to carry that. But once they got Gore-Tex tents, then they were modifying the light dimension into a more of a four season tent. Right. So this, this conversation came up with, with Bob Edwards a little bit. Um, and, uh, regarding a previous episode, um, and if you want to cut this part, we can cut this part, but, um, where do you see some of the major differences between, uh, uh, Jack Stevenson, you know, a tunnel tent, um, and the, the elliptical arch and, and the omnipotent. There's got to be some differences there. Um, oh, sure. You know, that was something that Bill mentioned, right? It's, no, we, we did something uh -huh. kind of our own. What, where do you see the major differences? Well, you know, there are several major differences. Um, first of all, Jack Stevenson would have your head for calling his tent a tunnel tent. Mm. It, it's, it, as an aeronautical engineer, it's an elliptical arc, A-R-C. And... Uh, so this thing has a vestibule on it right now, uh, which disguises its nature a little bit. But uh, first of all, Stevenson poles were rigid. Mm. They were pre-bent, but they were rigid. And that's for a really big design reason. And it's no accident that Stevenson poles were specially manufactured to be pre-bent aluminum poles and inserted through sleeves on the exterior to create a trim aerodynamic profile. Um, so the poles in the uh, light dimension, winter light, whatever, there are these flexible uh, uh, fiberglassy, maybe graphite, I can't remember exactly what they said the composition was, but anyway, they're flexible. And they do go into sleeves and they, they do stay on the exterior, so um, producing more of a smooth airflow. Um, so what you have here is just this, uh, other than the fact that they have thrown away Stevenson's concept of a uh, a double-walled, impermeable material, fabric, right? They've thrown it away. They say, Gore-Tex, it breathes. We don't need Jack Stevenson's stupid idea about an impermeable vapor barrier interior to the tent. We don't want that. We don't like that. So that's another huge difference. But the tent itself, my God, you look at it, you go, oh, look at that. <laughs> From the front, it looks 
just like a warm body tent. Right. Yeah. Um, even pulls out the, the same way across here. Hmm. Um, they've put a double zipper here instead of Stevenson was, I was kind of into that one single zipper. Um, that's the main stuff that I see. Right. There, there are some authentic differences, some really key design differences. This is uh, their signature Gore-Tex parka. They called it the Lost World. It was a very sophisticated parka design, not at all like what you might sew together from a Frostland kit mountain parka, just in terms of the features and the design. This was a very sophisticated design and <clears throat> very elegant design. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm glad that we were able to look at so many pictures. These visuals are really helpful. Um, I think we touched on a lot of the, the key takeaways from the company, but what do you, I guess if we could sum it up, what do you think the legacy of early winners in is? I, it seems to have a cult following still. I mean, as you've mentioned, people continue to reach out to you um, asking where they can find different items. Um, I, you know, the, the founders are, are still out there and active and involved and care about the history, which I'm happy to, you know, it's been fun to interact with some of those founders as well. Um, but, but where do you see the legacy of, of the company? Where do they fit within this larger history of gear? Well, for me, as the history of gear, like historian, it, they have to have a place because they were the first to jump on to Gore-Tex and turn it into parkas and, and a tent. Right. Uh, I would be totally remiss to not include them in the history, uh, whether they were a big, small, or, or gigantic success with what they did. Uh, they were the first and uh, sure there were a lot of other companies nipping at their heels in the next uh, six to 12 months. Lots of companies uh, who started throwing out the Gore-Tex products, but they were the first. Right. And What's then, that? as I said, this idea of uh, uh, trying to develop an income stream to stay afloat by selling all these loosely affiliated, interesting products with uh, uh, some real marketing flair. Right. Well, I think that's, that's a recurring theme as we've talked about different companies. And you mentioned this at kind of the top, but uh, all of these companies seem to go through this challenge of, you know, th there are a lot of outdoor enthusiasts out there who will buy a tent. But if we make a really good tent, they're not going to ever come back to us, right? You yes. know, if, if we make a really good parka, they're only going to buy, you know, a parka or maybe they'll buy a couple. Um, but then the idea is, you know, for sustainability's sake and, and for a quality perspective, we don't want them to have to come back, I guess. Um, and so, you know, I'm not sure how much of that thinking went into this idea of we need to make complementary products or other products to pull people in. Um, it, it, it's that's a constant push-pull that, that we're seeing. Don Wittenberger, Yak Works, and now Rivendell mentioned that same thing. He said, we kind of, we, we couldn't continue as a business because our product was so good, um, mm -hmm. which I guess is an interesting problem to have. You want to make good stuff, 
and and you know you hopefully you don't want to compromise and make bad stuff that's going to fail and people have to come back to you but um this is the one tactic uh one strategy mm-hmm. that it seems like early winners was you know really pushed um which is another takeaway i think they they found ways to create revenue streams you know and, and keep mm-hmm. the business going and so for your young designers uh Bill Nikolai, okay, so there he is. Uh, he's got this great design, and he's 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 cutting it out with an X-Acto knife in a friend's basement, and he must have a sewing machine, and he's trying to figure out how to sew it right. And young designer with no backing trying to make a go of it. Do those exist anymore? I would say, yeah, they do. Um, and so... I would add to that, uh, I was at a, uh, a gear conference in Portland uh, five or six years ago where a whole lot of young designers had products that were just their own little products. A new kind of bicycling pant, for instance, uh, that they were trying to make a go of, right? And other products that were different people inventing around the, the, uh, the Northwest, basically, although that guy was from New York City. Um, um, so people are out there, and I wouldn't want to discourage people from uh, trying. You've got a good design. Uh, you got to start getting it out. I'm sure you guys in your program uh, uh, delve into that subject, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, and that's, that's a huge, uh, we, we actually have a, quite a few students in one of the, I think our junior studio class that are working on tents right now. Um, and you know, who's, who's to say some of our students couldn't follow the same path as some of these companies. That's, that's the hope. And, you know, the motivation behind some of these stories is, you know, we need to preserve the stories um, in order for other people to learn the lessons from them. So my hope is, uh, you know, some students take away, well, and and non-students, right? Anyone who's listening can, you know, be inspired by some of these founders, right? It's like you can cut out some fabric in your friend's basement and sew something together, right? Um, It takes work, but, uh, you know, you, you can start something. Yeah. If you look at early winters, you have a designer with a vision like Bill Nikolai, but then he pulls in somebody with an architecture background who helps to perfect those designs and bring new designs on. But then he's got, oh, he's got a terrific marketer, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and that's a key in a number of these early companies that they didn't have that. They didn't have somebody who was a really good marketer. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, th- I think that's another key takeaway, right? Is this idea of a team. Um, a lot of these companies that we've talked about, it's, it seems like it's usually one individual or two that start something, right? It's Jack Stevenson you know, mm-hmm. doing a lot of this kind of, it's all his ideas. He's making it Larry Penberthy, right? Um, you know, it, Yvonne Chouinard, um, it's kind of one, a sing, single person. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, this seems like one of the first where it's like, we're really focusing on a core, a founding team 
and they all have their own specialization. Um, yeah, yeah. Within the first few years, they had put together this real core team, and they and they mentioned their head sewer. Now, th- that in a way is the story of Hollybar, too. If you think about it, yeah. Because you had you had Roy, who was really good at sourcing all this stuff, you know, from Europe or or connections to Bob Bruning, the blacksmith, to make all this right. ironware, and. <clears throat> bringing in a steady income stream, I might add, from his job at the university as a professor, and Alice, the design genius, and, oh, they had Jane Fortin, who was, you might say, the head sewer, who also did some design, which would be apparently like this woman that uh, Bill Edwards mentioned here, uh, Helene. I have not talked to her, but... Um, they had uh, so where was that? Mm. Anyway, they had a, a from the start. They had a, a very skilled sewer to, right. to to really do things. Uh, Jan Sport, if you think about that, Murray, the design genius, who won the seed money in a contest to get the company started, but he didn't know how to sew. Right. So that's where Jan came along and the company became Jansport and she was a a big sower of the designs for many, many, many years. So, um, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I like that chase. The, the idea of a, of a team, you look at Wormlight, what could I say about them? They always needed a member on the team. who was really good customer relations because that wasn't Jack. Right. Right. Well, and it seems like team is going to be the core moving forward for a lot of these companies. We we had Al Tabor on um, and and shared his episode recently, and and that was a core team of I don't remember how many people started Mountain Hardware. He said six like or six, yeah, six or seven, and they all had their own area. Um, and so it seems I don't know. It seems a team was always important for some of these outdoor companies, but it seems like it usually led with one name, one individual, but it seems like we're moving more into, okay, teams, these are real companies, you know, these, these aren't just, um, you know, not necessarily just people in a garage, uh, although there's an aspect of that. It's, okay, we're starting a company. There's a, there's, we all have our, you know, our thing that we're working on. We have our different roles. We're kind of moving into that, that phase or that stage era of the industry. Now, as maybe a last spot here, I'll throw up. Um, do you remember uh, Back to the Future? Oh, yeah. Okay, the uh, kind of rust-colored down vest that, uh, uh, what's his name, Marty McFly or yeah. was wearing? That was a, a Class 5 down vest, mm. Class 5, uh, a company that got started right around the same time as Early Winters. And uh, led by this guy whose father was one of the German scientists who came over after World War II, mm. Eustace, and his last name I, I've never been able to say, but uh, Brown Braunschweiger or something of that nature. Anyway, um, I still get requests for the Marty McFly vest. They think I'm class five. <laughs> and this thing has become a, a very cult item. Um, but... Uh, uh, he broke off from the early uh, North Face. He'd also worked for Trailwise, but uh, he broke off and he stole away two of the top 
uh, North Bay Sowers. Mm. May Chin and um, what was the other one's name? He stole them away. And he started out this company uh, as a team with himself, head designer guy, and these two highly skilled sowers mm. who were part of the company. They weren't just, oh, I hired these out on the street somewhere. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about this when we started the conversation, but it seems like mm-hmm. that's another kind of key outcome um, or lesson from from early winners um, and kind of the era that we're moving into. So, well, any parting thoughts where we could probably wrap it right here? I, you know, Bruce, I, I appreciate all your time unless you had, sorry, if you had one more thought on the company. Oh, oh my, my only thought is, is to lay out the welcome mat for, for any of those folks, Bill Nikolai, Bill Edwards, Ron Zimmerman, uh, to come forward during the winter months when there's no more hiking and, and uh, correct me where needed and uh, add to this story. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're, they're playing hard right now. So hopefully <laughs> we can get them when the, it's, not the, the, it's, it's not so easy to get out. So. All right. Okay. Well, thanks as always, Bruce. I appreciate you taking time and, and sharing your insights. And, uh, you know, again, all the incredible work you've done to document all this history. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on highlandermag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.